0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Surprise! That's what we yell when we throw a surprise party, isn't it? Surprise, everybody says, and, and the person comes into a room, and we know exactly, we the surprising, how the surprise Ed will act or react, is probably better said. They'll, they'll look surprised, you know. They'll, 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 they'll have that, that look all over their face. They didn't expect Mary and George and Bob and Bill and the school janitor and everybody else to come jumping out of the closets and from behind the tables and yell at them. And that's what makes it fun, isn't it? That they didn't expect it and that we caught them off guard, we surprised someone. And somehow we have discovered along the way that one of the best ways of surprising someone is to, um, is to pretend that we're not going to honor them at all. You know, we didn't recognize that it was your birthday or whatever. We, just, we were just going about our life and we, you were, weren't really on our minds. And then we do recognize them. We do honor them. We do, you know, make them feel valued. And, and that's a surprise. We, we moved them from one extreme to the other. And in that kind of movement, it made it a lot of fun. Surprise, we love you. <laughs> we really do. Uh, we were just trying to make you feel crummy so that we could make you feel happy. You know, that's what we do. Uh, the big trick, of course, in throwing a surprise party, and you know this, is not to let the person know. I mean, you cannot let them in on it, right? They can't suspect, even for a moment, that you're going to honor them. Because if they do, you're going to ruin the surprise. So it's okay it's quite okay to make them feel completely crummy and, and insignificant and unworthy for a, a day or a week or a month if you have to, just so long as you don't ruin the surprise. It's hard to throw a surprise party. I think maybe what we should do for birthdays is start celebrating birthdays at the six-month mark. You know, like, so if your birthday's in July, we could throw a surprise party for you in January. Because then you would be really surprised, wouldn't you? you know, I mean, nobody's ready for that. Here comes a party six months ahead of time. The best surprises, the, the, the best opportunities to surprise people, though, are always ruined by Expectations. I mean, that's how we ruin. I mean, how can you not expect, right? It's my 50th birthday. Surely my wife didn't forget my birthday. No, you idiot. Of course she didn't forget your 50th birthday, and you know she didn't forget it. And so, y- yes, you're going to be honored. But my husband didn't forget that I was, I was going to be, you know, graduating from the bar, that I passed the bar. No, of course he didn't forget it. It's a big thing, and so of course he's going to surprise you or honor you. And we know that when we hit these milestones, people are going to want to honor us. But the sweetest way to honor somebody is by giving them a surprise, you know, to, to, to let them not know. And we would be able to if we didn't have this history that we share, this history of, of honoring people we love, which is what we're supposed to do. We know that we're going to do this. People know this. They know, you know, it'd be so much easier I mean, if you were the kind of person that routinely skipped birthdays, you know, you like, you didn't ever recognize people's birthday, or, or your, you know, your husband or wife or, or mother or father, you know, they, they could really surprise you, right? Because one of the upsides of being a lifetime of inconsiderate behavior is that you can really surprise somebody. But that's not how decent people act. That's not how we're supposed to behave. And so we kind of give it away. There's another kind of surprise, though. It's the unwelcome surprise. You know, this is the surprise you get when you go out on a cold wintry morning and you put your key in your car, if you still have a key that goes in a car, and or you push your button or whatever it is you do and and, and it doesn't start. That's not the surprise anybody likes, right? It's not the surprise that you want. Or the one where you walk into your kitchen and you didn't see the pool of water on the floor and you that's not a surprise anybody's looking forward to at all, is it? We have a son in our family. Um, We have four sons, but one in particular that I'm thinking of who thinks it's quite the joy to spray down a hardwood floor with pledge, furniture, polish, so that whilst you're navigating the dining room, you might turn a corner and find that it becomes much harder to navigate than you had anticipated especially if you're running through that dining room with stocking stocking feet, you know, you wipe out and and go down. Let me tell you, when that has happened to me, and it has, I don't always say the most pleasant sort of things that go down. It's not always like, oh, dear Jesus, thank you for that opportunity. Um, it, It sometimes comes out a little different than that. Because sometimes surprises are good, and sometimes they're not. But listen to this, surprises are always predicated on expectations. You know, we can be surprised when we're you know, only when we're not expecting it to be. We're not expecting one to happen. You, you need you need some level of low expectations to be surprised. I expect to walk through my dining room and not fall down. Although I gotta admit it is kind of funny when the dog runs through and she sort of slides a little bit. St. Paul writes his letters to the Thessalonian Christians. You may be interested to know this, that 1 and 2 Thessalonians are some of the oldest documents in the New Testament. They predate all of the written Gospels. And almost all, save perhaps for Galatians, of Paul's correspondence. They are the very first letters that Paul ever wrote. And they predate all the rest of the New Testament as well. Some of the oldest documents that we have in the New Testament era are 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Paul writes the first letter sort of to encourage this little church in Thessalonica, today called Thessaloniki. Um, but he writes to this little Christian community there, and he, he sort of tells them three things. First of all, he wants to kind of um, encourage them and say you know, that he came there with good integrity. Because there are people who are out kind of slandering Paul's name, saying, you know, he doesn't have to make a buck on you. So he writes to him and says, no, that's not at all the case. He secondly writes to them to say, I want to tell you about the coming of the Lord, because there was a lot of confusion about the return of the Lord. And thirdly, he writes to them to encourage them in moral purity, particularly because these Thessalonian Christians lived in an area of of Greece where they had come out of a very pagan, sexual licentious lifestyle. And so he wants to say, you don't live like those pagans any longer. And so that's that's really the kind of purpose of the first letter. And the second letter is to kind of come back and to, to reinforce those issues. Particularly, he wants to talk to them about the return of the Lord. But I want you to notice that in the opening part of this um, first chapter of the second letter, he wants to encourage them in another area. Would you open your bulletins with me at the at the epistle lesson and look down a few verses to verse four? Kind of starts off with these um, these nice words uh, about um, about. Uh, His welcome from Paul and Silvanus, which is Silas and Timothy, talks to them about grace and peace to you. And then in verse 4 he says that Therefore we ourselves, that is Paul and Silas and Timothy, boast about you, that is you the Thessalonian Christians, in the churches of God, look at this, for your steadfastness and faith. If you had a pencil, this is where you would underline steadfastness and faith. In all your, look at this, persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring you're steadfast you're faithful in what? in all the persecutions plural all the afflictions plural that you are living with all, the, all these difficulties if you were to become a Christian in the first century you would find yourself living as an immediate um, outcast of society on the one hand, you had the Greek pagan world with its pantheon of gods, its, um, its, its loose mores of life. And here, Christians are buying into a, a, a very um, you know, a very structured moral lifestyle. And then on the other hand, you have Jews who viewed Christians as, as embracing a Jewish Messiah that was to them not the Messiah. So you have the, the Greeks who viewed you as an atheist as a Christian and the Jews who viewed you as a heretic. And to be in this position was very costly because oftentimes Christians were drug into court for worshiping an unsanctioned God, which was a very common uh, occurrence. So the gods had to be sanctioned. The Christians would defend themselves and say, no, this is the God of the Old Testament. And then they would be, they would be pushed into other sorts of... They, they were actually physically persecuted. You could read about Paul's um, beatings, the, the physical persecution he suffered. They were also harassed by soldiers they were expelled from trade guilds. You know, if you were a, a carpenter or a mason or whatever, you would be expelled from your trade guild because you would not offer sacrifices to the pagan gods. Your livelihood would be would be hard. You'd face hardship in your livelihood, and, and financial hardship would become regular. And then you were just basically viewed as weird and untrustworthy and, and, and a sort of person that... That people wouldn't want to associate with because you were worshiping this strange God, this God who was crucified on a Roman cross. And so Paul writes to these Christians. And here's what he says I'm proud of you. You hear that? I boast about you everywhere I go. I can't stop telling people how proud I am of these Thessalonian Christians because they're suffering and they don't give up, they're persecuted. And they stand strong. Hardship comes their way, they don't roll over at all. Good job. Well done, Thessalonian Christians. Now, if I was following the lectionary, this is really where I'm supposed to stop. Okay? I'm supposed to stop right here. I thought, well, you go down and finish up with the last two verses, 11 and 12 of the chapter. Whenever I see the lectionary skips five verses, I want to know immediately what's going on in those five verses. And, and you should too. I also checked the old lectionary, the twenty-eight lectionary, and all five verses were in there then. So, you know, I knew this was going to be a juicy bit of information. Um, here's what we're not supposed to know. Verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are suffering. Our modern sensibilities go like this. If something difficult comes my way, it means that God is against me. <laughs> you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a hospital when somebody says to me, Why is God punishing us like this? Or in a, in a difficult situation, why is God being so mean to us like this? Our sensibilities say, if God is with us, well then it's all sunshine, puppy dogs, and rainbows. And if it's not like that, that must mean that God is against us. Listen to what Leon Morris, he's a, a, he passed away a few years ago, Australian Anglican scholar. The very troubles and afflictions which the world heaps on the believer become, under God, the means of making us what we ought to be. The very troubles and afflictions which the world heaps on the believer. Become under God the means of making us what we ought to be. He goes on to say, "Suffering is not to be thought of as evidence that God has forsaken us, but evidence that God is with us." We don't want to hear this, you know. I don't want to hear this. I'm like, when when, when somebody says, "Who would like to sign up for suffering?" You know, I like run to the back of that line. Don't you? Like, no, not me. Um, my son Benjamin, he'll take him, uh, but not me. Right. Get somebody else. I don't really push Benjamin up there. I mean, I would, but I don't. Um, We don't want to think about suffering and persecution, hardship. But that's not really the difficult thing that Paul says. It's the second thing he says that's even more troubling to modern sensibilities. Verse 6. You knew it was coming, didn't you? Since indeed God considers it just to repay affliction, With those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Look at this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed. Two things Paul says here that are really difficult for modern sensibilities. One is that Christian suffering will end with the return of the Lord. And by implication, not until then. We believe in the coming of the Lord Jesus. We say it in our creed every Sunday. But guess what, sisters and brothers? Until that point, you can expect Christians to suffer around the world. If you follow Jesus, you sign up for some level of affliction. But the suffering will only begin for those who inflict suffering upon the church. Verse 8. God will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. I know, right? I mean, this is hard language. Nobody wants to hear this. Nobody. They're going to suffer eternal destruction? I honest? Into the ages forever? Away from the very face of God? Well, that's what Paul says. Joe didn't say it. You know, don't get mad at me. You take it up with him. You know, the oldest literature in the New Testament. Eternal destruction. When I was in Africa just uh, uh, two weeks ago, uh, I, I, the very, when I first arrived, the very first day, there was, a, um, there, there was a, a talk on the persecuted church. Testimony, first-hand testimony from people particularly on the continent of Africa who were suffering the most. There was talk of beatings, and kidnappings, and rape, the burning down of churches and homes of people for one thing, for following Jesus. The All Saints Anglican Church I mentioned just a couple of weeks ago in Peshawar, Pakistan. Six hundred Christians had gathered in there just just a little less than a month ago, gathered in there on a Sunday to worship an Anglican church in Pakistan. And two suicide bombers walked in and set off explosives, killed 130, injured 150 more. In Egypt, the Virgin Mary Church was bombed by a mob, throwing Molotov cocktails at it, chanting "Islamic State, Islamic State." Since the um, the Arab Spring in Egypt, where our brother Drew Schmaltz is right now, more than 50 churches. And Christian buildings, uh, schools and, and cultural centers have been burnt to the ground. October 20th, just a couple weeks ago, um, there was a wedding in Cairo at a Christian church, Church of the Virgin Mary and St. Michael the Archangel. There was a group outside gathering, m- moving in through the door when two men on a motorcycle rode up and with machine guns opened fire on the crowd outside there. Two young girls were among those killed, an 8-year-old and a 12-year-old girl. Their only crime is that they were Christians gathering at a Christian church. This morning, we're going to baptize this sweet little baby into this Christian faith. We're going to believe for her. And you know what? Some places in the world, this is costly. Now you say, oh... But you know, none of that happens here. You know, it's it's pretty safe here. Most of us gather without any fear. Walked in the door. Uh, um, we'll we'll tell you that we're going to do a thing next week on the on our trip to Africa. Every morning as we go into the, the All Saints Cathedral, there were police. We walked through metal detectors. There were police with with mirrors underneath the buses. Um, there were do- uh, bomb sniffing dogs all over the campus. Uh, there were people with a k forty sevens out there to protect us we didn 't walk into any of that this morning <laughs> we, walk, we walked in a very casual comfortable hello how you doing and i 'm glad but there is persecution in the west as well isn 't there i mean there is there is a an attack against Christian values in the West. Do you know in Quebec, um, they just are uh, trying to pass this, um, this thing called the, uh, the Charter of Quebec Values. And in the Charter of Quebec Values, they make it illegal for anyone to wear any religious symbolism, and they mark out particularly crosses or crucifixes in the public sphere. No school teacher or nurse can continue to keep their job if they would dare to wear a cross around their neck. This also happened in the UK. It's happened in Western Europe. Uh, Recently, there's a a group called the Girl Guides. It's like the the English equivalent of the Girl Scouts. A a woman protested against the, the oath because it referenced a girl's responsibility before God. And so the Girl Guides of the UK changed their oath to say this, I will be true to myself and develop my beliefs. I'll be true to myself and develop my beliefs. No longer I will be faithful before God. But true to myself, I mean, that's, that, is, that is a, a, a polytheistic religion. Worshipping oneself. Well, you know, all of these things are going on all around us. This is the world in which we live. No, it is not difficult to, to, uh, to, to live in the West. It's not, um, it's not frightful or not deadly, at least not yet. But our enemy, the devil, has found a way to try to silence To try to ostracize, to marginalize those who believe in Jesus. You know, I don't know if anyone has ever thrown you a surprise party, but I guess I kind of know what your expectation, what your reaction might be. I mean, you know what your reaction would be, don't you? You would smile, you'd cover your mouth, you know, you'd look around. You'd punch a little softly the person next to you because they're always the instigator, all right? You'd see all your friends, you'd thank them, you'd hug them, you'd kiss them, you'd embrace them. It'd be wonderful, a good surprise. It's always something wonderful to enjoy. And I can imagine what your reaction would be to um, to going out on a January morning and trying to start your car and the battery is dead. <laughs> yeah. Or if you were at my house and um and someone had sprayed down the hardwood floor and you were walking on your stocking feet and you had a cup of hot coffee in your hand and you choo, wiped out. I know you. You're much more cultured than me, you know. Um your reaction would be much more uh, civil than mine. But it wouldn't be pleasant, would it? I mean it might be just a little bit ugly. Because unwanted surprises bring about just as natural a reaction. I think, though, the Thessalonian Christians knew what it meant to follow Jesus. They knew that following Jesus came with a price. So they weren't at all surprised by the reaction of their culture. They were determined, despite the reaction of their culture, to follow him anyway, because they believed it was worth it. And the question to us this morning is do we feel the same way? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.